Jimmy, Jimmy Crane, Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Jimmy Crane's an improv nerd. Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Hey everybody, this is Jimmy Corain, and guess what? You are listening to another episode of Improv Nerd, and we are sponsored by Hotel Lincoln. The next time you find yourself here in the city of Chicago, and you're looking for a cool boutique hotel that's close to everything, it's right around the corner from Second City, across the street from the beautiful Lincoln Park Zoo, and minutes to Michigan Avenue. It's not only pet-friendly, it's also improviser-friendly as well. It's the official hotel of Improv Nerd, Hotel Lincoln. Now, all you have to do is call Hotel Lincoln when you make a reservation and mention Improv Nerd, and they'll take 18% off your room rate. Or, if you're online, just type in the code Improv Nerd. Check it out, Hotel Lincoln. Also, if you want to bring me, Jimmy Corain, to your theater improv festival to teach my award-winning workshops and record a live improv nerd in 2016, contact my wife, also the business manager, uh, Lauren Corain at lauren at jimmycorain.com. That's lauren at jimmycorain.com. Also, check out my book, Improv Therapy, How to Get Out of Your Own Way to Become an Even Better Improviser. I talk about things that improvisers are really afraid to talk about, like jealousy, being jealous of other people's career, or judgment, judging your ideas or your scene partner's ideas on stage, shame and fear and anger, all of these emotions, all of these things that get in our own way. I give you simple and practical solutions so you can become even a better improviser, the improviser you always wanted to be. It's only $3.99, and it's an incredibly short read. You can go to Amazon.com and get it as an ebook, or go to my website, JimmyCorain.com, and download it as a PDF. All right, we have another great episode for you of Improv Nerd, but I want you to think about it. I want you to really think about it. When was the last time we had a bad episode? I, I can't think about it, but as you know, don't don't bring it up because I'm just going to be really defensive. Uh, our guest today is Zach Ward. He is the owner, founder, executive producer, director, and comedian at DSI Comedy Theater in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. He is also the founder and executive producer and artistic director of the North Carolina Comedy Arts Festival. We talked to him about starting improv classes in North Carolina while he was still living in Chicago what it takes to run an improv theater, and why he considers himself a comedian who does improv. This episode was recorded at the DCI Comedy Theater in beautiful Chapel Hill. But before we get to the episode, I just want to say I have some really good news for you guys. Uh, Lauren and I just got back from an eight-day vacation in Cape Cod where we rented a house, and I didn't ruin the vacation. We got along. I didn't get in a fight with her, which I usually do. And the best part, besides we saw seals and went on bike rides, is we had sex six times while we were there, which is pretty amazing. And the one day, we actually had sex twice in one day. And I'm talking about full-on sex. I'm not going to get graphic here. You're all adults. You can imagine that. Or not. It's up to you. Uh, so I just I wanted to share that because somebody at my age, 51 years old, to have that much sex, uh, that's more sex than we had on our honeymoon, uh, is quite an accomplishment. So 
you're probably thinking uh, that's way too much information. I, I, I just want to skip to the interview. Go ahead. Skip to the interview. I'm not going to be heard about that. I just had to let you know. Here it is. You're going to love this. All the way from North Carolina, Chapel Hill, beautiful Chapel Hill, North Carolina, at the DCI Comedy Theater. Here it is, the Zach Ward episode. Enjoy. You were born here in Chapel Hill. I was not born here in Chapel you Hill. You weren't. No. But you, you moved around a lot as a kid, right? I did. I was, I was actually born in Seneca, South Carolina, and moved uh, a lot of people uh, from South Carolina. Uh, I moved up and down the East Coast and came to Chapel Hill in 1989. And your, your dad was in the Army, so that's why you guys moved a lot? Yeah. How was that like every year or something to have to move? How did comedy help you make friends? Um, well, I, I think I mean, that's exactly what it was. I think every single move we had to figure out, okay, how do I break into these already established friend circles? And so um, coming to Chapel Hill, especially when I moved here, was in the middle of seventh grade. Um, I was actually in the middle of a production in Maryland. A theater production. A theater production, and I didn't know it, but my parents had talked to the director and said, we're moving tomorrow, and so told my director but didn't tell me. And we woke up on a Saturday morning, and we're moving to North Carolina. And I had two more shows. I had a Saturday show and a Sunday show. Um, so I found out many, many years later that uh, that conversation is why I didn't get uh, a leading role in that show. Uh, so were you angry? that's so sad. It's sad, but I would be so angry. Were you angry at your parents? Uh, you s- say that as if it were in the past tense. Okay. <laughs> I can totally um, relate about right. anger with parents, yeah. yes. Yeah, so I think, uh, so yeah, moving here, um, at that time, it was, how many people can I make laugh and love me? So. Okay. <laughs> now, this is going to be so sad. <laughs> I, you, you know I love sad. Yeah. You know I love sad and I love angry, and I, I, I certainly can relate to be, still being angry at your parents, because that's... I still struggle. With I that. think I'm not. I think I'm not angry at them anymore. I think mm-hmm. I'm w- like well past that. I've I've fully accepted that my parents are who they are and the sort of set of circumstances that led me here. Just how'd you get work. over that anger? Because I still struggle with it. Oh, a lot of relationship dysfunction. Mm-hmm. That's how I got over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I think I, I think you get past things by having other things not go well in realizing that, oh, there's a significant pattern of uh, negativity or a chase or uh, all those things that lead you to just accept and be okay with how things are. So then in high school, you started acting and you were exposed to mm-hmm. Viola Spolin. Yes. For theater games. Yes. And then, and then your sophomore year, you started an improv club at school. Mm-hmm. What was it about those games that inspired you to get so excited about improv to start a club? Uh, when you are a freshman in high school, uh, things are so sad and uh, everything is everything is, ten, is tenuous. You don't know, like, is today going to be a good day? Is tomorrow going to be a good day? Who knows? Is before lunch going to be good? Is after lunch going to be good? And so when I started doing these VLS bowling games and I knew that every single time I did a game, people around me laughed who I did not know. Or people who were making fun of me earlier in the hour were laughing by the end of the class. Uh, And I said, I need to do this more. Um, And I was also a little, I mean, this is before everybody was ADHD. 
but I was also doing actual scripted theater. But this was, oh, I want to do this and not have to memorize anything. And so started an improv Were you club. a good, good student? I was, yes, I was a good student. I was uh, an exceptional student who knew how much I had to do to get by every single class. <laughs> I was very strategic about the level of success I achieved <laughs> in, a, in a class. In terms of, like, I'm only going to work so much to get a B kind of thing? Yes, I okay. wasn't. I wasn't worried. I wasn't worried about it. Um, I, yeah. Um, and then when you're 16, you started taking classes at comedy sports. Yeah. Well, uh, f- yes, 15 or 16. Um, so I had gone to a summer program in North Carolina called Governor's School, and at Governor's School I met Eric Honeycutt, uh, who is a part of comedy sports in Raleigh, and we did improv for six weeks all summer and. At the end of that summer, he said, oh, there's a comedy sports club opening up in Chapel Hill. You should totally check it out. And I did, and this was my junior year of high school. I went out. Everybody else was already in, they were either in school at Carolina in college or they were adults uh, who thought it weird that I was there. Uh, (laughs) But uh, it was fantastic. And I was, instead of going to prom, I did two shows. (laughs) <laughs> my junior year what was it like being the youngest in the class um, well it changed the dynamic of uh, people who typically drink after shows uh, in their first improv team uh, we would go to Applebee's uh, <laughs> instead of the bar and we went to Applebee's so that everybody could have drinks and I could have potato skins uh, <laughs> and, and that happened um, for like a year or so, I was sort of like that was my that was my social time. I was uh, going and doing you know anywhere from two to four shows a weekend um, when I wasn't actually in a play at school. And so you do a lot of plays in school. You're mm-hmm. doing comedy sports, yep. and then you decide you're going to go to the University of North Carolina. Yeah, I didn't decide. I didn't decide it. They decided it for me. How did they uh, do that? <laughs> um, well, it meaning wasn't that court order. No, no, it wasn't court order. It was like you. <laughs> You will go to this university. Right. Uh, I actually applied to Carolina, got waitlisted. Um, I then applied to NC State, got in immediately, and I got waitlisted from Carolina until late April of my senior year. Um, so there was definitely like six months that I thought I'm going to not go to college uh, because I <laughs> because I I applied to Carolina, I applied to Carolina, got waitlisted, got in the state, and I was like. No. Uh, and then finally got into Carolina and, and went there. But you're the first person in your family to go to school. I, and, I and, and you decide you're going to be pre-med. Why do you want to be a doctor? Uh, so there was, there's a story that my mom told me later that uh, at some point growing up, um, I wanted whoever I married to just keep having babies. And uh, they're like, how many, how many babies do you want? And I didn't have a number in mind. I just would always reply, one a year. Uh, and uh, I think I was just fascinated with that. So I wanted, so I had this like, uh, I don't say it's a fantasy because that makes it sound weird, but uh, I had this goal of delivering a baby, like actually delivering a baby. And so I was pre-med because I thought I'm going to go to med school, I'm going to be OBGYN, and I'm going to deliver babies. 
But I bet in the improv you've gotten to do deliver babies many times. <laughs> in the yes. Uh, you know, something about it is not the same, but... Uh, um, but I was actually in school, and while I was in school in pre-med, I was doing improv and focusing so much on that, and eventually I was in a genetics class, and it was just this absurd relationship with the professor, and I was like, I don't... I don't want to be in school anymore, and I don't, I don't want to do busy work, and I don't want to do anything that is just uh, there to do it. Um, and so, do you think you were doing it to please your parents? Oh, no. My parents didn't know what I was doing. Uh, they knew I was in college. Um, <laughs> we, they but, knew you weren't living at home. Right. They knew yeah. I wasn't, they knew I wasn't at home. Sh- when I was a... When I was a sophomore in college, my parents actually left Chapel Hill. Um, so they moved back to Maryland, uh, which is one of the places we lived moving around. And so at that point, I was actually a sophomore at college in my hometown, but it, was felt, it felt like I, was, I went away to school. So, um, yeah, so they, I mean, they had no idea what was going on. What, what was it that they didn't know it was going They just, like my parents, it was total neglect, you know, like... I don't want to say that, but okay. Uh, um, I think it was just a, I was, too, I was too much for them. They also had my sister who is two years younger than me and was a significant handful, and I kind of knew that. I mean, there's... Emotionally? Yeah, emotionally, the logistics of her life. Um, she, she, was, she was rebellious. Like, I'm the, uh, I always say this sort of like, I'm the black sheep of my family because I... Got a, I got A's and B's. I didn't have to work for it. I knew what I wanted to do. I made that happen. At most points in high school, I had more money in my bank account than my parents had in theirs. And, uh, and so I just didn't let them worry about me, and they didn't worry about me. And I think at some point, probably in the last couple of years, my mother and I now have an understanding that she is she's just happy that I took care of myself because I I think for a long time she was worried because she she wasn't in a position to take care of me the way she wanted to if that makes sense as a parent might want to take care of their right. child and she, she, she can just, see that because my mom when you bring stuff up she just gets defensive yeah just wait till you have kids you know like okay yeah. great mom and I I think she I think she did that for a long time she got defensive uh my, uh, but then it, that shifted, like my mid thirties. How has that helped you, like in your improv career? Like, oh, like- I have I have a lot of care. Like everyone, probably almost everyone in this theater who has ever seen me do a show, know that I have a precocious little boy character. Who's like, hey, dad, uh, and that kid uh, wants a father figure to fix some unfixable situation, and it's different every single time. But I know for sure that's just because that's, uh, that's Zach uh, coming out on stage and saying, Hey, Dad, there's a thing you're not going to be able to do, but I'd really like for you to be able to do. Can we talk about it for five minutes until someone edits? <laughs> um, and then, that is sort of me working out that like, feeling. So for all of you who have been in scenes like that, thank you. Because it's like, what? <laughs> 
And just so you know my experience, it, you probably have a hundred more to work through. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's halfway oh, there. I'm not. In no way am I going to stop those okay, initiations. Great. All right, so in 2000, and 2000... Some weeks, some weeks are better than others. Okay. And so some weeks I'm like, oh, hey, Dad, didn't come out in the show. Right. Must have been a good week. <laughs> Uh, so in 2000, you decided to move to Chicago, and uh, you started yes. at the I.O., mm-hmm. and you wanted to do as much improv as possible when you got there. Yeah. And you sign up for one class, but you find a loophole, so you could take three classes at one time. Tell us how this, you did that. This was an accidental loophole. Uh, so at the time, I don't think uh, Sharna, and Sharna, who has been here to the theater, uh, and uh, was really great at this last festival, and, and very kind... I totally took advantage of her lack of organization uh, because I, I went to take a class and in taking a class would miss a class for work or miss a class for, for, sick, for being sick or something. And they're like, oh, well, just go to the Wednesday section or go to the Sunday afternoon section. And so the first couple times I did this, there, I just said, hey, I'm making up a class. And they said, great. And they didn't ask me what class I was in. They didn't uh, make a note of my name anywhere. And so probably for uh, two full levels, I would go to anywhere from one to three classes a week just telling the teachers. And I would go to, see te- I would go to take classes with teachers that I couldn't get in their class, but I really liked them on stage and would just sit in their class under the auspice that I was making up a class. Uh, so we're one, some of my students my, or my classmates were going to one class a week. I was doing nine hours of improv as compared to their three. And how did you get caught? I didn't get caught doing that. Okay. Uh, I, I think um, I just, uh, yeah, I was like, whoa. And I just got tired. <laughs> so I think I stopped that because I got, I got tired. And then you, you, when you were in level three uh, at I.O., that you got put on a team, and then you stopped going to class, and you, you, you're grimacing now as yeah. I tell them. You, you, I there's know. some pain still there. What, tell us about um, that pain. This, so at the time, it, you know, some things happen. It's interesting because we just had auditions here at DSI, and you know, there's some open conversations. There's some transparency. And then people don't like to talk about things. And uh, if there are issues, it's not always uh, totally out in the open. So I got put on a team in level three. And this is something that they stopped doing soon after that. Like, you have to go through the entire year program. um, And you have to audition. And you have to audition now. And so you would get the schedule, uh, which is on a printed 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper by the box office, and go pick up the schedule. And your name might be on it. And my name was on it. And the team that I got put on was rehearsing on the night of my level three class. So I'm like four weeks into level three, and then, then I just like was like, oh, well, I got put on a team, and they're telling me the rehearsal is the day of this class. I guess I just am done with classes. <laughs> uh, and started going to this uh, rehearsals, and uh, was, had a, there was a conversation that came back around to me that, uh, I had to go back to class, and I was like, kind of, in some people's mind, blackballed from, because they were just like, what an ego, what a, that, so full of himself, he got on a team, now he thinks he doesn't need to take classes. And at the time, if I could only have told them, 
no, I love classes. Just a couple months ago, I was going to three in a row. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I was like, I can't say that. So when you say you got blackballed, what does that mean? No, I mean, in some like... Um, blackballed or, or just now he has a reputation? I, like there were, some, there were some teachers, some members of the faculty that was just like, oh, that's Zach. He doesn't take this seriously. And, you know, at, in retrospect, I'm, I know for... I've had conversations with some of... Some people are like, oh, that's, well, that was, that was then, and clearly you do take this seriously. So, um, but at the time, you know, people who just want to get on a team, want to get on stage, and don't care about the art form, I think that was what was. So what was it like, you know, you brought uh, Sharna down for mm -hmm. last year's festival. Now, here you are, you worked at her theater, like all of us, mm -hmm. probably weren't getting paid, mm -hmm. and now you're an opportunity to bring her down and hire her. What was that yeah. like for you? Um, it was, I think, well, I think Sharon and I, whether we know it or not, have a very interesting past. Um, but the conversation to come down here for the festival, it's our 15th annual festival, and got in touch with her, and she was like, that's great, yeah, let's do it. And I, I think one of the things that was, which I've saved, I screen captured it, it was great. Uh, was, okay, well, great, well, here are the terms, and let me know if I um, can send you a contract. And she sent me a Facebook message, and it's just like, I trust you. <laughs> and I was like, great. <laughs> great, awesome. <laughs> uh, and well, had you built it up so much? Have I had had I built, you built what? No, no, no. Like, oh my God, I don't know if she's going to do this. What, yeah, what? I mean, it, I, I didn't know. I know, and also she had just opened the new theater, so and there's so much, there's so much going on. But it was our 15th anniversary, and I really wanted um, her to be here for it, and um, and just see what we've been doing. And it's not on this on our current stage, but it was on our. Uh, on our stage in our old theater, and you saw it in the lobby, and we have an image of Dell. And uh, I'm very, uh, well, I have like a, in that I don't really, I, this, hey, Dad. <laughs> like, I've, I've been my whole life looking for family and looking for that sort of uh, family history. And going to I.O. and reading about Dell and, uh, I walked past Dell once. That's my, the length of my experience with Dell. But, um, but just knowing that he's the father of the work that we do on stage now, I, I feel it's just so so big. The idea of Sharna being here on stage in this theater, which has actually happened before, um, but under this like weird circumstance. Um, what was weird about it? Here's what was weird. In 2005, DSI Comedy Theater opened up its first physical theater space. And then, shortly after that, for some reason, unbeknownst to God, <laughs> IO decides, IO, who has a theater in Chicago and a theater in Los Angeles, decides to open up IO South in Raleigh, North Carolina. And that uh, was, for me, having just opened our first physical theater space, 
to have IO South open up in Raleigh, North Carolina was a, uh, oh. And even though I was really, I kept working and continuing to push what we were doing, in the back of my mind for about a year and a half, the words I couldn't say to my company and my friends who are playing with me was, it's been fun. <laughs> because I thought that if IO really wanted to, they could capture all of the long-form interest in the triangle. Why, wouldn't, why would people come to study with DSI when they could study with the theater that gave birth to the list so of you, you celebrities. So you felt like it's over for you. Yeah, you and I didn't feel... And this is an interesting thing. I didn't feel angry about it. I felt... Uh, because I also am a very... Like, it's just, that's just business. And uh, I'm very much in the business of comedy. And when there was an opportunity and Iowa South sort of opened, I was like, we're going to keep working, I'm going to keep hustling, I'm going to keep doing the things we do. But in the back of my mind, it was, get ready to shut her down. Well, the yeah. thing I think uh, uh, that I admire about you is you're not afraid to hustle. You're not afraid to self-promote. And you know in the, in, in the improv community, you, you can kind of... Uh, rub people the wrong way sometimes if yeah. you're always self-promoting. How, how do you deal with that? Um, I think there was a lot of there were a lot of times where it was there were things I didn't promote as much, and I saw the difference. So there were definitely times when there were shows I was putting up in Chicago or things that were happening uh, that I was impacted by people around me that you know, had said, like, oh, you're, you know, this is too much, or, um, you know, this is an independent thing. Um, why should it, why should it have the accolades that it has? And I would think twice, and and then, I, I don't know, I think I sort Were of got to a point. Were talking about the beatbox? Um, there were things, like, uh, the beatboxes, the beatboxes won, although that actually had some cachet. It was the first, uh, first show of its kind, mm -hmm. and... Um, and it was very different than anything that was happening. So people, it was a hip-hop improv show, and so people were honestly excited about it, but then there were people that were like, oh, but, but it's not, it's not long form, or it's not improv. Right, but but we'll say it's gimmicky. Yeah, it's gimmicky, yeah. It, has a, it has a hook. And, um, and my, my thing always is, well, we do comedy, production value is important, improvisation is sort of like the engine underneath 90% of the work I do. Um, but dress it up however you want. I have a history since 1993 of short form. So I love comedy sports. I love competitive short form. I love doing family-friendly short form. Uh, and improv is improv. So um, I think we got off track. <laughs> but, um, but, I, but I do. I, I, I do hustle and I do promote. And I think that uh, at a certain point, if you're not promoting, you're just waiting for someone to find you. And I, I think maybe that came from like I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna wait around. What do you think the fear is for people in improv to do self promotion? Um, oh, this is gonna be 
rough. Uh, so if you don't promote, you don't have to be upset that no one came. If you don't promote your show and no one's in the door, it's just up to the world, right? So you can't be upset at yourself. You can't be upset at your product. Like, there's no risk. There's no vulnerability. But if you promote the hell out of your show, you say, you know what? I am proud of this. I worked on it. People need to see this. And it sucks. Well, you're going to have to deal with it. Uh, but at the same time, if you see accidental success, that's just accidental success, right? So I promote myself, and I'm like, you know what? If it sucks, it's going to suck, and I'm going to be found out. But at the same time, if what I have, to, what I have is worth it, then now I get that benefit, right? If people accidentally came to your show, then, like, be proud that people, like, walked by. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Um, I think, but I think it's an interesting thing. Like, I actually, for the beatbox and some of the things I did in Chicago, I, I quit my Herald team um, because I wanted to focus on my projects and what DSI was producing. And that was sort of at the time unheard of. You don't, you don't quit a team for a theater that makes people. And, and I did. And I, because I didn't have a goal of being, being on a team until I get found by someone else. And I didn't really have Second City as a goal ever, so, which is odd for someone that went to Chicago. Um, so you're in Chicago yeah. for about a year, and then you started D DSI mm -hmm. and the Comedy Festival in Chapel Hill. What inspired you to start that festival? Well, the inspiration to start the first festival was I was doing a, a duo with Beth Maluski in Chicago at the time called Dual Exhaust. And Dual Exhaust had... Dual Exhaust was probably one of the best experiences of my in improv way? career. It was... We were both on a Herald team together... Uh, named Business Casual, and um, on that Herald team, you know, we have an IO cast Herald teams that are anywhere from 10 to 13 people on a Herald team, and we were doing shows, just the two of us, and we're absolutely responsible for every move that got made in that show. We were never off. And so doing that show consistently on a regular basis, and then going back to do a Herald after, it was like, a day at the beach. We had time to think. I had time to process. I had time to consider how could I heighten this scene? What could the second beat be? Because I have two scenes that I'm not even in. Whereas I was doing 45-minute shows with Beth, just the two of us, where we're on the whole time. Um, so that was just sort of uh, boot camp for the process on stage. Um, we actually like ran cage as like we were young in Chicago, and got retired uh, from the Cage Match Hall of Fame uh, there, and got a run upstairs for almost a year in the Del Close Theater. Uh, in the first year, you you bring that show to the festival. Yeah, Is that was the, was that why you created the festival? Yeah, well, so Beth and I want, like, I was still connected to the improv team here at UNC Chapel Hill Chips, and wanted to come wanted to come back. Beth, we should go back. We should do a show. And I literally created a festival so that I could justify charging a registration fee, which would then pay for our plane tickets. <laughs> so 
in order to Which pay. Which is funny because now that is common practice in these festivals, and it's a huge cash generator. Yeah, it is. It, but it was a. It was an excuse for Beth and I, who were not so old or out of college, to come back, do our show, which was successful in Chicago, on stage on a college campus, maybe go to a keg party or two, uh, and hang out with my college friends. And we did it, and there were two other colleges that came, uh, Vanderbilt and uh, UGA Athens and UNC Chapel Hill and Dual Exhaust. And then a week after that, those schools said, great, when's next year? And I hesitated for a second. It was like, end of February, <laughs> as if I had planned it the whole time. <laughs> and, then went, and, then went, and then walked away. I was like, am I doing this again? I guess so. And that next festival had 90 people at it. And then they keep growing and growing and growing. Yeah. And then the, the second year, somebody comes up to you and says... Well, someone comes. <laughs> the second festival we did, which is the second festival, is the third festival we did. Uh, in 2003, um, a, U, a UNC student named Dave Siegel, uh, who now teaches for the UCB Theater in New York, he, he was a student at Carolina and came up and said, I want to know how to do that. I want to learn how to do what you just did on stage. And I hesitated for a second and said, Well, we're starting classes in two months. Again, no, no, no. No plan whatsoever right. to teach classes. And meanwhile, I'm the director of education for comedy sports in Chicago, rewriting their whole curriculum. And I had wrapped my head around what I liked from I.O. and what I liked. I'd taken some annoyance classes and had worked with a couple people at Second City and was like, oh, this is what I believe in. This is what I like. And so I wrote, a, I wrote our first curriculum for DSI and had people who were here in North Carolina, old friends of mine, teach the first couple classes. And uh, Dave Siegel uh, sent me $75 cash in a loose leaf, wrapped up in a piece of loose leaf notebook paper to my apartment in Chicago for a class in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And uh, as soon as I got that money in Chicago, I was like, I got to register five more students so I don't cancel this class on him. <laughs> and we had six students in our first class. And then we had, I think, uh, nine or ten students in our next class. And we had taught two 101s. And then these students started asking, well, great. Well, when is our show? When can we do this stuff that you're teaching us? It sort of like snowballed from there. And then you decide, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move back here. You've lived in Chicago. What are you rolling yeah. your eyes about? Uh, yeah, it all just seems like so smooth <laughs> when you look back. But you tell me that it wasn't that smooth the first couple of years because you thought the fear of uh, FOMO, the fear yeah. of missing out. You move back here to yeah. Chapel Hill. You run this theater. Mm -hmm. And you're like, God, I'm missing out back in Chicago. When did you realize, you know what, I, I made the right move? Um, I think everyone. I think everyone has a fear. I mean, fear of missing out is like this, like new term, term right? Yeah. New phrase. I think everyone has has felt that at some point or another for all time, right? Um, and I'm I'm in I'm in Chapel Hill, and 
we're doing shows. We're doing shows at an ice cream shop. My friends are on another Herald team. Uh, some of my friends are getting picked up to do a Second City Touring back Company. Back in Chicago. Yeah. And, uh, and so back in Chicago, like, I'm connected to all these things that are happening, and I am just working. I'm living upstairs at my grandparents' house, taking care of my grandfather during the day, and organizing classes and teaching, uh, teaching directing rehearsals and doing shows at an ice cream shop and a bookstore and a rock club. And it is just, every day is an adventure, but every day was like, this is such a, like a jungle. Like this is a jungle and everyone who I was friends with in Chicago had a pretty clear path, even though they had sort of gatekeepers telling them whether they could do it or not, if they could do it, they were doing it in what was already set up for them. And you said that uh, you know managing an improv community can be really overwhelming and that it can be like a dysfunctional high school. And you said you had did to I, de- Did I say that? You said that. <laughs> and you said you had to decide when you, when you started out what was positive and what was and productive for you to yeah. do. Can you talk to me about that? Um, I actually, you know, I, I had a director, I had a meeting with my directors. We just had auditions and had a meeting with my directors this afternoon. And, um, what is positive and productive to do there? This is a, this is a, a theater and our whole mission as a theater, DSI comedy theater as a mission is in the very beginning, it was, oh, I'm going to open this theater so that my friends and I have a place to play and no one can tell us we can't. That was sort of what it was. And so it was playing with friends. And then that friend group, just like the festival started to grow, and it was 15 people, 25 people. Now we have almost 100 people in our company. Uh, and, and even though some of them are not as close friends to me, I do consider them all family. Um, and... And so what's positive and productive, um, I guess, means sometimes, sometimes there is a person in your family who takes up eight, like this whole 80-20, right? 20% of the people are going to take up 80% of your time. Um, and are we, are we able to take care of people in a way so that you have enough energy to do the things you need to do for the other 80% of the people. And that, over time, the lessons of um, what I can do, what the theater can't do, what people want from the theater, what the, what the theater is able to make happen for people. And in a market like this, where people are either using it as a way to, to go somewhere, it's transient, we're always kind of starting over, um, or they're here for a long time and they're invested in it, but in a way, in a Chicago or New York or L.A., if you put your time in and you're 10 years in, you're in a larger market. So now you become a veteran in a larger market. You're probably going to be in a position to do commercial, not commercials, but commercial level work, right, by being in the scene. Here, it's still just a hobby, right? But yet there's that human need to, like, get what is the theater doing for me and I just want to make sure I'm taking care of as many people as I can. Um, Is it a big responsibility for you? Oh yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's a huge it's a huge responsibility. And I 
And that responsibility goes down to our directors and then our faculty and, um, and taking care of our students. Uh, and knowing that, like when I would teach 101s and I wanted to impress upon our students that we are a comedy school. We are not uh, a community theater, community center that just happens to offer improv classes. Uh, we have a very specific curriculum. We are teaching you these things. The skills of improvisation can help you. Uh, they are very therapeutic, but they're not a replacement for therapy. And I think the biggest <laughs> issues that the community has faced and the theater has faced is people that want the theater to be their antidepressant. No offense, Jimmy. Uh, and, and so to see that improvisation, yes and, and the spirit of what we do is therapeutic, but is not a replacement for therapy. And, and so that's, that's uh, exceptionally heavy at times. Um, and at a certain point, because we do, a pro we do provide a product to an audience that comes in, uh, and we, on stage, have to be so many different things. We have to be a space for people to experiment, a space for new improvisers to try and fail. Uh, but also, we need to be a space that people can come and enjoy themselves. We need to be a space where people can come and laugh consistently and laugh on a regular basis, laugh so much that they say, you have to go to this place and see the things that they do. And I think that... Um, it's really hard to be all of those things, uh, and we try. We, tr we try very hard to be supportive, but also uh, sort of mold and create uh, a cast in the style that we want to Do you feel for produce. you that you've created that family that you've wanted? Uh, well, uh, yes. Today, you know what was great today? Today I had this meeting with my directors and my, my three-year-old son came to the theater and he often comes to the theater and uh, I'm, this is not supposed to happen, I'm not supposed to cry right now, but, uh, but my, my son gets on stage, he knows where the microphones are, <clears throat> he knows how to turn them on and there have been times on a Sunday night when we have been ready for a rehearsal and his nanny was coming to pick him up because I had to direct rehearsal and 25 company members <laughs> are just in awe watching my son do bits on stage. <laughs> and uh, it is, yeah, it's awesome. Um, is, is it so it's been, so like the, my, my actual son being able to be here and on Saturday mornings, so there's a group of people from the theater that play D&D &D in the basement. So, uh, so, so in some regards, like we're all family, and, and I feel like I'm like one of the family, and sometimes I'm, I feel like I'm a mother up here. Just go to the basement, play your D&D. &D. Uh, but my son gets to go downstairs and play with the dragons and the figures, and he feels at home, and he feels, he knows people's names, and I'm really excited for him to grow up here, and I think it didn't feel as much, there's, you know, things happen. It didn't feel as much as family until uh, we opened this theater. It felt like family over time. 
But when we opened this second theater and my son was a part of that my, uh, and was able to interact not only with the space but the people in the company, um, yeah, that was pretty magical. Is it that your son can be seen, that he's being taken care of like you weren't taken care shut, of? The shut the fuck up, Jim. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so when I was like growing up, I was always like searching for a friend group that wanted me to be in a hundred percent. So I was I was everybody's funny I was everybody's funny friend, and I was in every single social circle, but I wasn't really in any of them. Uh, which is why, <clears throat> in leading an improv theater. Even the people that take up my time or need extra care, if they're taking care of the theater, which is all of our home, I will spend any amount of time I have to to make sure they're seen, heard, and if there's something I can do, I will do it. And unfortunately, that doesn't mean putting them up on Fridays at 8.30. <laughs> But it is, that's how it is. Fridays at 8.30 is a prime slot and people are... Well, like, I don't know. It's an example, but... Right, but well, why yes. am I on Fridays at 8.30? Prime. If you really love me, you'd put me on at Friday at 8.30, <laughs> right? Yeah. All right. So, I don't know how to transition. We're going we're gonna <laughs> to improvise. We're going to do improv now? Yeah. <laughs> this is awesome. But here's the thing. Don't you think sadness is good to use and people are afraid to go Hey, there? Dad. <laughs> If you want to do that I think it's scene, great. I'm, no, no, no. You know, I, I don't need to work that out with you, Jim. Okay. <laughs> um, but don't you think sadness is an emotion that we can tap into, that people are afraid to... Absolutely. And I, I think that's one of the things that I teach all my students, and some of them get it and some of them don't, is that you want to be the sad person at the beginning of the scene. You want to be the underdog. You want to be the person that is like at the very bottom at the beginning of the scene. You don't want to be the guy that comes in who's the alpha, who like is in control, because that guy always loses. Every movie, every story, the person who's in control at the end, loses, in control at the beginning, loses at the end. And the person who is vulnerable, sad, at a loss, doesn't have all the resources, they come out, they come out on top. And so, yeah, I think all those negative emotions that you experience, anything that like is really heavy, if you can channel that and know that, like, hey, you know, you can yes and your way through all of this, then those characters and those scenarios, you can come out on top at the end. See, I wish I could do what you do is cry, you know, like access that, you know. Well, no, don't get, don't want that for yourself. <laughs> I, I would love like, that. I, I, I cry. I cried, so the last Fast and the Furious movie, I bawled like a girl. I like, and I'm, I don't mean that non-gender specific. I bawled like a non-gender specific. I, uh, but I, I cried at Fast and the Furious. I cry at movies that are like just absurd. I cried at the movie Fifty First Dates, uh, which is a wonderful cinematic masterpiece. Um, I, and my son is three now, and I, have, I love the movie Fighting Nemo. But in the last two years, I've probably seen that movie a hundred times. And uh, the, the, minute, the moment where uh, the mom 
and all of the eggs have been killed by a barracuda or whatever, which, you know, I don't wish that um, my son's mother was killed by a barracuda, but, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> the last couple of years have been weird. Uh, <laughs> but, when Nemo's, but when Nemo's dad picks up, like, the last egg and, like, holds it in his fin, and this is the beginning of the movie, and, like, I just just start crying, and I'm like, I lose it, and my and Zach is watching, and he is so, he's in this moment, he's like, you're sad. <laughs> I'm like, right now, dude. We, we went to see the movie Inside Out. Did you see that movie? Love that movie. Oh, love my God. Yeah, so. I, I love the sadness character. It was my favorite. It's <laughs> awesome. And, uh, and. So this is the movie that, uh, this is our first movie that I brought my son to see, like see. And uh, there were two moments uh, that he out loud uh, articulated in the theater that like basically broke down uh, a wall, like the dam. Like there was just like people, it was a packed theater, sold out. And you could imagine the people behind us, like they were just like holding it, like holding themselves together. And as soon as Joy got upset for the first time and Joy got sad, he just turned around in like this loud stage whisper, she's sad. <laughs> and like, <laughs> behind us. And then, <laughs> and then uh, you know, whatever, we'll just give it away. But at some point, like when the imaginary friend, uh, when Bing Bong, right, uh, does what he does for the cause, um, Zach uh, just turned around and said to me, Dad, where Bing Bong go? And uh, I started crying. The, like, 12-year-old girl sitting beside me who was, like, holding it together, she just looked at us and then started crying and held her mother. And, like, the mother looks at me. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what to do. But, but those, those moments are uh, funny, too. Those moments are funny, too. So. I think the three of us should go see Inside Out together. <laughs> Playing down at the varsity. Yeah. And we, you know, just crying to you know, just, sing up. Just, just you, me, and a toddler between right. us. And we'll just <laughs> lose it. All right. So we're going to improvise. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I wanted to give you a little time to decompress. No, I'm good. Because I'm crazy uh, and codependent. want to take care of your feelings there. So um, let's, uh, what do you want to do? What kind of suggestion do you want? Um, we'll just get a suggestion. We'll do it. So we're like 15 minutes left. 15 minutes. We'll do about a five or six minute scene. Five or six minute scene, and we'll do a right. Now we have to be out at a tight 9.45, or you, I mean, you run the theater. I run the theater. There's a 10, there's a 10 o'clock show. Right. So 9.50 at the latest. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, all right, so uh, what do you want to take as a suggestion? Your choice, Jimmy. Um, can we have a location? Cockpit of a bomber. Cockpit of a bomber. <gasps> Okay. Sit back down. Okay. <laughs> so why don't we just pull these chairs up just a little? So we'll be the cockpit of the bomber. And uh, so when you hear cockpit of the bomber, how do you process that? Because you you there was like a cockpit of the bomber, and then you went, you kind of sigh. So was that like you going, I don't like that idea, or you like that idea? Oh no, I love that idea. Okay. I like well, I like all the ideas. It would we've been sitting for so long. Right now, like oh, let's just sit back down. Okay. So you We're hear, gonna do it. Okay, great. So you hear cockpit of the. So uh-huh. how do you process it in your head? In my you, yes, in my mind, immediately like cockpit of the bomber. My first instinct was 
I don't feel good about what we're doing today. Okay. That was my gonna be my initiating line. Okay. Should I change that? No, 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 no. It's whatever you want to do. It's just so people understand your process. Yeah. The suggestion. So cockpit of the bomber had a very specific action. I was either gonna be into it or against it. Okay, great. All right, yeah. great. If it would help the pilots to be on segways, this is where you guys can stand. This guy comes all the time and does weird stuff. <laughs> <laughs> is that how you deal with it? What? Is that how you deal with it? Yeah, it's like, like He's like a member of the family that's not actually in the family. <laughs> but yeah, like he's, a member, he's, the, he's the neighbor that's always lived a house over. From the family. And like he still shows up at our parties. Okay. <laughs> and you, you like this banter, don't you, between you? Oh, he loves it. That's the brother I never had. So I don't know about his life. But whenever we play the short form game Moving Bodies, mm -hmm. he's the one I have to watch. I'll stick my Yeah, no, no, no. There are three improvisers, and then we get three audience members to like physically manipulate them like they were action figures. And so either he's going to make them do things to each other they shouldn't in a family-friendly show, or he may touch people in a weird way. No, I, I bought one for you too, but if you don't want it, you, I'll just, I, I've got it wrapped up so I can oh. just give it to you for later. Okay, yeah. let's see. I mean, who knows? I don't know how this is going to go. I may not lose my appetite. I may lose my appetite yeah. and then get it back. Yeah. <laughs> I've just never been in here before, so it's just, what? I've never been in here before. <laughs> I'm the... Yeah. You know You're what? the captain. Yeah. How have you not been in here before? Well, I was sick for a while and I studied off the internet. <laughs> they like called me and they said, hey, could you come in? And I'm like, well, I had nothing to do. My wife was, she was shopping, so I'm like, sure. But I've never flown, I've just done the same. How long is your wife gonna be shopping? <laughs> I don't know, she was going for a pair of shoes, so it was maybe two or three hours. So, I imagine we have that seatbelt in, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> being in a cockpit of a bomber is similar to being in an airplane. <laughs> in that this is an airplane. Uh -huh. yeah. Okay. Alright. Don't you have any moral issues with what we're about to do? No. 
I'm fine. I'm fine with it. <laughs> I don't want you to go off tight. Okay. Blue. Blue. Yeah. I never there's saw a, that. There's a, there's a color sequence you have to go through. Oh. We, my, my monitor, it, it was kind of screwed up, so I couldn't really figure out the colors. Your monitor? Yeah. Oh, well, at home? Yeah, Your laptop yeah. monitor? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I hooked up, yeah. Your monitor at home, the color was so messed up that you didn't know. Yeah, yeah, I hook it up to my phone line so I get the DSL right for the internet. <laughs> it's supposed to be uh, blue, two yellows, and then the red one blinks all the time. I don't really know why it blinks all the time. It just does. It stops blinking. We should be worried about that. Okay, great. All right. Okay. I'm belted in. I'm belted in. I've been belted yeah. in the whole time. Yeah. I got belted in as soon as I got here. Yeah. I don't feel safe in this thing even when it's on the ground. Really? Yeah. Well, I feel safe. Anywhere. I didn't choose to be here. I got demoted to here. I'm sorry to hear that. But I did, because you were smoking, right? Hmm? Because you were smoking. I heard a guy was smoking in the cockpit. You're, I know that. You're I, know. I wasn't smoking in the cockpit. That's not smoking. What is it? That's not smoking. It's a vaporizer. <laughs> Vapor is not smoke. Well... Have you ever done it? Have you ever done a yeah, vaporizer? I have done a vaporizer, but oh, yeah. I was in college, yeah. Oh, I was that kind of vaporizer? No, we put a lot of Vicks vapor rub in there, and we, no one had cold. <laughs> on the whole floor, no one had cold. If anyone had a chill, they'd knock on my door, and I, I would take care of them. <laughs> so I know what you're talking about. You do not know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you and I are talking about two very different things. I... If I was talking about that vaporizer, I had a very different, I had a very different childhood. I was sick for most of my childhood. Anyways, <laughs> all right. You want a cookie? Oh, I'd love a cookie. Yeah, these are no bakes. They're called no bakes. Okay. Yeah, it's like a chocolate oatmeal. Great. Thing. I'm just gonna put it here because I, I want to eat my. I'm gonna save this for later. Oh, you save these? Save you these. have that much discipline. You yes, have that much cookie yes, discipline. Yes. I don't have that cookie discipline. <laughs> but I am allergic to peanut butter, so I make these. It's like chocolate peanut butter oatmeal thing. To this give to other people. I make these to give to other people, knowing that if I had one of them. I would die. <laughs> well, the sandwiches are peanut butter and jelly. Oh, fuck. <laughs> well, that's a good thing. I'm not going to be hungry for them. No. But what I did read in the manual is... How is your wife? She's doing well, thank you. Is she buying shoes for a We're going to uh, event? my brother's weddings next week. Oh. Yeah. Where does your brother live? He lives in, uh, uh, he lives in uh, Chicago. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm just gonna, Which part of Chicago? He lives on the north side. Oh. <laughs> right by the ballpark there. Yeah, I'm familiar where the ballpark is on yeah. the north side. Yeah. That's what we're taking out today. <laughs> You're kidding me. No. We're bombing Ridley Field? Yeah, the Cubs have already started to sell pennant tickets or whatever. <laughs> oh my god. So You're the kidding White, me. The White Sox commissioned this bomber. <laughs> <laughs> so 
so they'll take out regular. No way, yeah, really? All the rooftop, oh. all the rooftop seats are gonna be gone. That's like that's a three mile radius. Oh yeah. Oh, it, unfortunately, it's not. It's gonna. It's gonna start it. We're, we're we're basically bombing so that Wrigley is on the. We're. <laughs> We're bombing uh, north of Grace. Okay. <laughs> north of Clark and Grace. So we're gonna take out the firehouse and then the yeah. Cubby Beer. Oh yeah. <laughs> if we really want to hurt the, if we really want to hurt Wrigleyville, we're gonna have to just get rid of all the bars. Here. Yeah, all the no, take out, just put a bomb in the middle of the barley corn. Okay. <laughs> I don't know about that. Well, you shouldn't know about it. <laughs> Knowing impacts your judgment. We've been given orders, and those orders are to eliminate the north side of Chicago. <laughs> what if I don't want to go along? That's how I feel every time I get in this thing. What if I don't want to go along with it? i got a confession to make. I don't know how to get this thing up. How are you here? Okay, so how'd you feel about that? I thought it was okay. Did you say <laughs> Yeah. What would you like to have done differently? I thought you did great. Uh, yeah. I thought it was. I mean, I thought it was. I thought it was fun. I thought it was okay. I have a very like. So what would you have done differently? So so let's say we're done. This is a note session. How how would you? Yeah. Um. I think, I. I led my character down a path that was flat. And in those characters, anything I would have had to come to like have more gravitas or more of an emotional response mm -hmm. uh, would have felt manufactured. Okay. So, I've, But I thought I could have kept that up. Right. For a long so time. if we did it again, well, how would you, what would you have done? What do you think we should have done? Um... Were we too nope. low status? Was that? I think that might have been an issue. Yeah, Did neither one of us knew how to fly the plane. Like, okay. I didn't want to fly the plane, and you didn't know how to fly the plane. Right. So this was just going to be, uh, we're not going to do the thing. Okay. And then, so we're not, so the stakes are actually, we're going to stay on the ground. Right. I don't want to do it. You don't know how to do it. So we're not actually going to bomb anyone. Right. Uh, so that was just going to, like, throw a flat line. Okay. You know so I mean? if we did again, some place high status, some place low status? Yeah, we would have gotten into the air and then had that conversation. Okay. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Do you want to try it again? <laughs> sure. No. Yeah. Okay, great. Sure, we can. Okay. I'm looking at. I'm looking at time. We have eight minutes left. What do you guys want us to do? Do it again, or would you like to ask questions? We got eight minutes left. Questions. Questions. Okay, great. <laughs> I don't know if I. I don't know if I want to answer any of that person's questions. Okay, great. So turn the questions. So turn the house lights up. No. Great. So anybody got a question? What we just did, or for Zach? Who's now the, that the house lights are up. Nobody wants to ask me a right. question. Cool. I guess we could do that. Yeah, right here. here. Uh, no, I actually get to improvise with my son every single day. So I think that's, I think that's 
the best, that's the best thing is because I am now built for make-believe. Great. Yeah. Uh, another question for Zach. Okay. What's the difference between how much you want to be funny and how much you really need to be funny? That's a good question. That's a great question. Um, I actually, what Jimmy and I talked, we're talking about this little downstairs. Like in my, in my twenties, I would need to be on every show that I could possibly get on. Um, so I was saying, like in high school, like I was doing four shows a week, and the reason I was doing four shows a week is because there were only four shows a week. And I was doing all of them. And now we have a theater with shows five nights a week, two to three shows a night, and I'm happy to do one show a week. And I think uh, at this point, I, something I've talked to my students about a lot lately, who get down on themselves for one bad show or one bad scene, to like take the note, you know, take the critique on this one show or this one scene, because if you want, there are thousands of more scenes for you to do. There are thousands of more shows for you to be in. Um, so I don't, once that sort of clicked, um, in my 20s I was like, oh, I gotta keep doing all these shows because two weeks from now this could all be over. And now I'm at a point that I just, I actually went uh, and visited some friends in Greenville, South Carolina who have a theater there, the Alchemy Comedy Theater, and they, we're like, oh, you should do these shows and these shows. I was like, I'd actually just like to hang out with you. <laughs> like, I really, I was in town at an improv theater that would have put me up in any show I wanted to do that weekend. And I loved doing one show and then wanted to spend the rest of the weekend with my friends. So I think, you know, that's, that was a nice place to get to. Great. Another question? How about you? The need to be funny versus wanting to be funny? Wanting how much you want to be funny as opposed to how much you really need. Well, we were talking in the green room, and I think for me, uh, it all depends on the day. Sometimes I'll wake up and not be funny and go, oh my God. You know, because when, you, when you're funny from early, you know, it's, it's very important. It's part of your, your, your self-esteem. And I think, uh, but after a while, when you do it long enough, and you've, you know, you get older, you're just like, okay, I don't need it as much as I did, we were talking about in your 20s. You wanted to prove yourself, you wanted to prove to your, to, you wanted to prove to yourself, and you wanted to prove to other people. And once that is gone, then you're, you're improvising just for your mental health. Yeah, and I, I don't think, I, I needed to be funny uh, so much more because I wanted to be loved and I wanted to be loved and respected I wanted people to pay attention I wanted people to like being around me and so I needed to be funny so much because I was always questioning whether or not I was worth people being around me and so I needed that so much more when I was younger and got to a point that uh, I feel like I have certain friends and certain people that I know like love me and want to be around me so I still want to be funny for them and with them, but I don't feel the urge to need to be funny so that they'll stay around. And I don't know if you had experiences, but, but I did. I thought for the longest time that doing good shows was the substitution for love. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I thought that love was the substitution for love 
in a lot of can the lights go down? Can the lights go down? <laughs> uh, one more question for Zach? Yeah, right over here. You mentioned your time in Chicago and comedy sports and IO shaping your philosophy when you were writing those curriculum and things mm -hmm. like that. Uh, could you articulate what you feel like is the voice of this uh, comedy theater in Chicago? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Yes, it, it's really interesting that I actually studied in Chicago because I don't think that my style of play is necessarily what Chicago would say that it teaches. Uh, my style of performance and the style of DSI is much more akin to the UCB theater, which I didn't go to. Um, but uh, when I talk to all of my students, like we are a comedy theater, we're not an improv theater. Um, I'm a, and I tell my performers, I am a comedian who chooses to improvise. And that's what is the DSI style of play. We play fast, we are fast paced, we're aggressive, we do the thing that is fun. Um, if, some, if, there is, if there is any place to go that would be more fun than here, let's go there now. Uh, and um, yeah, I, that's pretty, uh, that's a heavy question. And we have a minute left. So. Great. So uh, not that anyone's conscious of the time. Uh, let's, uh, we, we always end our, our show with um, a question. And the same question is, what would you, what piece of advice would you give to an improviser starting out today? Uh, well, it's the same question that I would, or the same piece of advice I would give to everyone, which is, uh, there will be enough. Zach Ward, yeah. thank you for being our guest on Improv Nerd. And there you have it. Another episode of Improv Nerd is in the can. And I want to thank our guest, Zach Ward, for bringing us down to the DCI Comedy Theater in beautiful Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And I loved what he talked about uh, creating a family and improv. And also when he got to that part, and he was talking about how much his son meant to him. I thought that was really a really nice part. I want to thank my producer, Dan Schiffmacher, here in Chicago. He's the one who makes me sound so slick and so professional. If it wasn't for Dan, you wouldn't be hearing my voice right now. Also, if you want more information about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning improv classes here in Chicago, The Art of Slow Comedy, or if you want me to come to your theater or festival, just go to my website at jimmycorain.com. Also, follow us on social media. As you know, we are taking over. Uh, go to our Improv Nerd fan page uh, and just like us on Facebook. Also, follow us on Twitter, Improv underscore Nerd. And check out our wonderful YouTube channel at Improv Nerd Podcast. We are also part of a podcast collective called Feral Audio. They have some wonderful and hilarious and innovative podcasts. So go to feralaudio.com. I'd like to thank our sponsor today, Hotel Lincoln, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And until next time, remember, walk, don't run. I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman 
rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL. The 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. Oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would, he even, why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P in Spanish, <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> he spots his dear friend who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. <laughs> Scarface yells out his signature line. <laughs> Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. <laughs> oh, my God. 